This is SGO Radiation Oncology Podcast Series, first series of hopefully uh, several, many others to come. I'm your host, Dr. Mian Shahzad, Associate Professor of GYN Oncology at Moffitt Cancer Center. It is really wonderful to have Dr. Michael Montejo, Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology at Moffitt Cancer Center as our guest today. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Oh, uh, Mian, thank you very much. Um, it's a, it's an opportunity and a privilege to, to be able to share and, and talk about uh, various relevant topics in, in GYN oncology. So thank you. Thank you again, Mike, for joining. And thank you to our audience um, who are joining us. Mike and I have a history, um, a very pleasant history of working together. It's been my privilege also to uh, uh, have Mike side by side um, in my clinic uh, where I practice UN oncology. Mike is practicing radiation oncology and is always very helpful. So Mike, um, going back to our topic today, radiation therapy, um, I have a list of questions that I thought um, many of our, our audience will probably have the same and they can benefit from your knowledge. Um, I would like to start off with the first question um, where you can perhaps discuss the role and rationale of brachytherapy in treatment of uh, gynecologic malignancies? Sure, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, brachytherapy uh, is, uh, is, is a core component of, of treatment of, of several indications in, in GYN oncology. Probably, you know, as you know, the, the most common applications would be for locally advanced cervical cancer and frequently used in the post-operative setting for um, endometrial cancer. Uh, you know, cervical, uh, sorry, brachytherapy is, is not really a new concept. Uh, it has evolved uh, over, over really several, uh, many decades. Uh, some of the first applications of brachytherapy actually date back to over 100 years ago. It's come a long way in the interval. Um, but generally, the, the, the principle behind brachytherapy is dose escalation. It's, it's the ability to dose escalate a target, uh, for our purposes, we'll say a target in the pelvis, and to dose escalate it, uh, you know, to a dose that, that would have a high probability of eradication uh, of that target. Uh, so, you know, what, what do I mean by dose escalation? Well, we know that for, let's take, for example, locally advanced cervix cancer, we need, you know, X dose in order to give ourselves a comfortably high probability that the tumor will be eradicated. Yeah, the most recent data from the EMBRACE uh, trial, which is a European trial that, that provides a lot of guidance on this, you know, we typically need an equivalent dose of around 85 to 90 gray uh, to the what we call the high-risk clinical target volume, uh, which is really the tumor in the cervix plus the uh, cervical remnant. Uh, as it appears following external beam radiation. So we know that we need to take that target up to that 85 to 90 gray range. Um, it, it's probably pretty intuitive that if we try to raise the cervix to that kind of dose without brachytherapy, let's say we tried to do this with just external beam radiation, uh, we would very quickly find ourselves bumping up against, uh, you know, dose limits that we can tolerate to the, the bladder wall 
uh, you know, which sits immediately anterior in the rectal wall, which is behind us, and, you know, the sigmoid complex, which is kind of above and posterior to the cervix in most cases. So, you know, external beam radiation by virtue of the fact that the beam originates outside the patient's body and, you know, passes through a lot of tissue on the way in and then passes through tissue on the way out, it's always going to deposit dose outside of the target. And, and so that limits our ability to really confine that high dose to the target. And that's exactly where brachytherapy plays a very important role. You know, Mike, um, if I could jump in just to ask another question, which sure. is, um, you know, as you as you are um, doing the simulation or, or devising the delivery of external beam radiation therapy, which organ in the pelvis, uh, um, as you know, is the most sensitive that you have to be careful of the, the most? So the most the most dose limiting is, is typically the bowel. Um, and, you know, that, that includes, you know, from the rectum to the sigmoid uh, up to the small bowel. Uh, the, the most sensitive, really, portion of the bowel is, is the small bowel. Um, the, the rectosigmoid can tolerate a bit more, uh, but those, those are generally the dose-limiting structures. Uh, the bladder actually can tolerate quite a bit higher dose, uh, so that's usually a secondary consideration. So does it make a difference if a patient had a surgery or if they had a... Um, um, a radical hysterectomy or a simple hysterectomy, then they come to you after the surgery when you are uh, planning the delivery. Yes. So, you know, as, as we, you know, as we've discussed in, in the past, you know, in the post hysterectomy pelvis, you know, now, now there's a void or an empty space that used to be occupied by the uterus and the cervix and the parametria. And so now there's kind of a space for gravity to pull the bowel down into the pelvis and, and that creates complications because if we're trying to now come and irradiate the pelvis for some indication, now there's that much more bowel that's in the field. Uh, and so that, that is uh, one of the places where techniques like IMRT has been helpful. IMRT has allowed us to really confine you know, a bit better than we did in the past uh, the dose to, to really the target tissues in the postoperative pelvis and not you know, blast away at all the bowel that's down there now. Um, so, so, so I guess what is the difference between the three D conformal versus IMRT? Um, if you want to elaborate on that, sure. No, that's a that's a great question. Um, IMRT is actually a form of three D conformal therapy. Three uh, three D conformal therapy, what it what it what it implies, is that in in the process of planning, uh, we are taking a CT scan or an MRI or some imaging and defining a, a three-dimensional volume that represents a target or a non-target. So, you know, we are defining the size and shape and three-dimensional sort of uh, appearance of, of, let's say, a target tumor and its relationship to three-dimensional non-target structures like rectum and bladder and, and, and bowel and so forth. And so those are all defined in, in sort of a virtual space. And then, you know, planning team or the physicists are now free to devise fields, field shapes, field directions uh, that are most advantageous for treating that particular target. You know, this is in contrast to the past, where instead of rendering an actual target volume, you know, field shapes were defined based on bony anatomy. You know, so you, you probably remember some of the old, you know, four field boxes where mm -hmm. a pelvic field would kind of hug right along the post.
to the sacrum and go out to the anterior pubic symphysis and, you know, bounded superiorly by the L4-5 or, you know, interspace or the L3, L4 interspace. So, you know, those were, were fields that were really defined based on bony anatomy. You really had no knowledge about the actual soft tissue anatomy that you were treating. Uh, now 3D conformal therapy has allowed us to specifically define soft tissue target volumes in the pelvis, and we can shape the fields to those rather than just relying on bony anatomy. And so, just, Mike, um, are you able to deliver more targeted therapy to the to the area where you really want to with this technique? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. So, IMRT uh, allows us to do 3D conformal therapy, but it it gives us additional degrees of freedom in being able to shape the way the dose is distributed in the pelvis. Uh, IMRT gets complicated. Um, it, it's the short answer to your question is yes, it, it often does allow dose escalation uh, because we, we pretty dramatically can improve sparing to non-target, you know, dose-limiting tissues. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I can delve in a little bit into the, into the sort of the physics of the planning. I don't know if you were really that interested in that part, but, but yes, to answer your question, that is the case. I think we can save the physics for later on. Um, <laughs> but uh, let me ask you about the brachytherapy, um, the interstitial versus intercavitary techniques, if you can elaborate um, some of those for the audience. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, brachytherapy, you know, as we were speaking before, really generates a very confined uh, dose distribution and it, and it really restricts it. Um, to a, to a specific target volume that we define in the pelvis. And that's its main advantage. Like we were saying, we can really confine the high dose to the target and, and not hit surrounding things. It's kind of a double-edged sword uh, because sometimes it's a disadvantage that that our, our, the volume that we can cover is, is kind of restricted uh, with the brachytherapy. So uh, a workaround that is to switch from conventional intracavitary techniques, which is, you know, the, sort of the, the standard tandem and ovoid or tandem and ring, into these newer generation hybrid uh, interstitial techniques or, or conventional interstitial techniques. And the whole theory behind interstitial techniques is that we extend the range of the brachytherapy by introducing additional dwell positions uh, in the tissue. And, and those, t those dwell positions are introduced via hollow needles that we can advance uh, into the areas that we want to treat. Um, is, this, is this similar to like SIAD procedure or are, are there other um, names, I guess, that I'm not aware of? Uh, no, that's exactly right. There, uh, there are a couple, there are a number of, app, of approaches to interstitial brachytherapy. Probably the most uh, historic and, and popular one has been uh, the SIAD template, which is uh, basically, it's a, it's a perineal template it has a vaginal uh, obturator built into it. Um, there was another one called the uh, Universal Muppet uh, Applicator, which is very similar. And then there's a whole uh, sort of newer generation of interstitial applicators where the template, if you will, instead of being placed at the perineum, the template is actually placed um, right at the level of the cervix itself. So the applicator, you know, for like example, the tandem and ring, the, these rings will now have uh, holes or ports in them where you can 
push needles through the ring directly into the cervix itself. So um, it's, it's got some advantages. It has some disadvantages. So anytime, you know, we're evaluating a patient for something like this, it's really a, an analysis of the size and the distribution and location of the tumor. And that's what helps, you know, sort of help, helps us select the best applicator. I see, Mike. Um, I want to move on to asking you about um, SBRT, and I think um, not a lot of us are familiar with SBRT. If you can uh, touch on the role of SBRT and, and, and maybe the biologic rationale for this as well. Sure, yeah. So SBRT is a uh, relatively new technique. Um, I would say, you know, just off the top of my head, I think it's been around probably 15 or 20 years now. Uh, and uh, SBRT was really one of the initial uh, applications. If, if you don't mind a little bit of a digression into the history, it's kind of interesting. Um, it, it was initially really uh, devised for uh, lung cancer, uh, early stage lung cancer patients um, who, you know, some of these patients had smoking related lung injury that was so bad that many of these patients were just not candidates for, for thoracotomies. Uh, which would have been the curative treatment at that time. So these these uh, very uh, accelerated and ablative radiation programs were developed uh, for these patients. You know, the aim was to be able to eradicate these small, early stage, you know, lung cancers without having to put the patient through a thoracotomy. Um, you know, these were early trials. They were conducted by the RTOG, and they were actually astoundingly successful. The infield or the probability of tumor eradication was very high and, you know, treatment was tolerated exceedingly well. So people started looking at this, these SBRT schemas and applying them in different areas, uh, you know, in, in many different settings, you know, for, you know, for example, metastatic disease, you know, a limited burden or not we call it oligometastatic disease was one of the popular areas where people started using it. Uh, it was used in various palliative settings just simply for the convenience because treatment could be completed so much more quickly. Uh, and so it's kind of flourished from there. There's been a lot of growth uh, and uh, adoption of, of SBRT techniques in, in multiple body sites now. Uh, so Sorry, so, Mike, um, what I was going to say was I think oligometastases, my plan was to discuss that in our next session. But if we if we go back to to the initial treatment, for example, for cervical cancer, um, if you can um, go into a little more granular details in terms of um, the amount of uh, radiation required by the external beam radiation that you deliver, and then, and then how much do you give by the brachytherapy technique? Um, how do you give it? Uh, in terms of uh, how long does it take to deliver that, um, and and what's the role of chemotherapy with that? Sure, sure, okay, all right. Uh, so yeah, um, a, a standard garden variety, uh, let's say locally advanced uh, cervical cancer, and just for simplicity, we'll say it's a a one B three. You know, not something that would necessarily need interstitial approaches. Uh, so the, the, the typical strategy is, is sort of a two-phase uh, treatment, and, and this is how I explain it to patients. So we begin uh, with generally a five-week course or 25 treatments of external beam uh, radiation therapy, and our target dose at that, you know, for that particular phase is 45 gray in those 25 fractions. 
And we do give a low dose uh, cisplatin uh, alongside the radiation at, at 35 to 40 milligram per meter square per week. And, uh, and the, the targets for that particular phase of the treatment includes the cervix, the upper vaginal tract, the uterus, and the, the parametria, and then, of course, you know, all the pelvic lymph node groups uh, that are considered at risk. Uh, you know, that would typically be the external internal iliac obturators and the common iliac as well as the upper presacral nodes. And, uh, and we, our, our goal for the first phase of treatment is really to try to, I use the word sterilize, but really just clear any subclinical microscopic disease from those tissues and to begin downstaging the primary tumor that's in the cervix. You know, these tumors, as many of us see, are, are often quite large, you know, five, six, seven, eight centimeters. 45 gray is, is unlikely to be able to, to clear uh, a tumor of that size, but it should be able to start shrinking it down, you know, downstaging it, making it as small as possible. Uh, and, and sort of, you know, creating as small a target as possible for the subsequent brachytherapy that comes uh, later. Uh, so then the brachytherapy would be the phase two. So, uh, Mike, why is, can't why can't we just clear it with external beam? What is the rationale of, uh, of uh, you know, stopping after 45 grays? So I, I think that's, that's really the question about dose. Uh, you know, we know we, we've identified with uh, a number of historic experiences in randomized trials. And, and like I said, I was referring to the EMBRACE trial that we really need to hit a dose of around 85 to ideally even 90 gray to that high risk uh, clinical target volume. We call it the high risk CTB. And it's hard to reach that dose with external beam radiation, even if you're using IMRT or, or, or other sophisticated techniques. It, just by virtue of it being an external beam technique, it will always be inferior to brachytherapy in terms of its ability to confine the dose to the cervix and not hit other things. And, and so it's really the brachytherapy complements the external beam radiation in that it allows us to raise the tumor to those kinds of doses, but still protect adjacent bladder and rectum and bowel. You know, it is... Uh... Um, unfortunately, quite often that we see patients who are treated outside, Mike, uh, we've both seen over the last 10 years, um, where patients have just received external beam radiation therapy and they couldn't get the brachytherapy because it wasn't available at their institution. Do you still see some patients like this who come to you just for brachytherapy after completion of external beam? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, we do see that uh, periodically. Uh, Sometimes it's simply because uh, the referring practitioners maybe don't have access to brachytherapy or don't have the expertise for it. Uh, brachytherapy does require a little bit of a logistic uh, and infrastructure support. Uh, frequently these procedures are done under anesthesia uh, and that's something that is difficult to have if you're a, if you're a doctor in a freestanding center not, not connected to a hospital. Uh, plus, you know, these guys, if they want to do brachytherapy, they have to leave their clinics and go to the hospital and do it and, and you know, not be in their primary center. 
uh, it, it's sort of regulatory guidance at this point that if a radiation oncologist isn't in the clinic, they shouldn't be treating patients. And so if you're pulling off for several hours to go do an implant, it's, it's hard to keep your clinic going. So just logistically, it's difficult for many doctors in the community. Uh, so yes, brachytherapy, you know, does require an investment of resources and infrastructure, and it's not easily accessible all the time. Uh, we have, the way we deal with this is we have relationships with doctors in the community, and, and we sort of keep the lines of communication wide open, and if they are going to start a patient on on, uh, on treatment, you know, we encourage them to, and if they want to send the patient in for brachytherapy, we encourage them to refer the patient in early, you know, allow us an opportunity to examine the patient, obtain any imaging if necessary, and, and start the whole, you know, preoperative you know, clearance process and, and get anesthesia lined up and so forth. Uh, so, so that coordination is key. I think it can be done, uh, but it does require some communication and, and, and planning. Mike, uh, we have to wrap it up. I really appreciate your time, and I'm very thankful for all the listeners who joined us. We hope that you will continue to join us for our upcoming series. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to. It's, uh, it's great, like I said, to, to share... Uh, share our experiences. Thank you. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, Please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.